Welcome to Tad Dickel's Leadership and Strategy Podcast, bringing you authentic conversations with leaders about their approach to leadership and their organization's strategy for success. Hello and welcome to the Leadership and Strategy Podcast. This is your host, Tad Dickel. And today I'm joined with Matthew Nix. He's the president of Nix Companies based in Poseyville, Indiana. Welcome to the podcast, Matthew. Thanks, Tad. We're happy to have you here. Would you begin by just sharing a little bit about your background? Sure. So I am fifth generation in our family business, and this is really the only thing I've ever done. Or I I should say this is the only business I've been involved in because what I do has changed a lot, but started out sweeping the floor when I was eight years old and cleaning up machinery. Today, we're a diversified uh, metal fabricator predominantly and and, and some other industrial coatings and things that are complementary to that business. But metal fabrication and manufacturing is the core part of our business. But grew up in the business. And uh, when I tell people we're fifth generation, they typically think that I joined into a a pretty large and established business. And uh, while I certainly give a lot of credit to our founders and forefathers, uh, we wouldn't be where we're at without them. It is important to point out we were just mom and pop when I joined the business. So there was only four family members uh, when I joined in and uh, started full time pretty well right out of high school, went to Vincennes University for one year for welding in 2004, joined the business full time. And uh, like I said, there was four family members and hired the first team member outside the family in 2010. And so uh, that's, I think, kind of where the leadership journey began, you know, in 2010 to where we are today. And made a lot of mistakes along the way. Sure. Well, that, that's really helpful. So so from then 2010, hiring that first family member or non-family member, so really, you know, probably had a handful of employees at the time. How many employees are there today? With all of our companies combined, uh, we're over 150 now today. Okay. So pretty, pretty big growth over the last uh, 12, 13 years. Yep. Now, how would you describe your approach to leadership? That's a good question. Yeah, I guess I need to polish that answer up. People were asking me all the time how to describe the culture of our company, so I finally decided I should write it down. <laughs> so maybe I should do that about my leadership. But I would say, yeah, this, if there's some highlights that's what's unique about my leadership style is I really focus on autonomy of my team members. I like to equip and inspire them. I try to give them the resources they need and then sort of stay out of the way and let let them do uh, what they're great at. And so we've done the personality tests in our organization. If you haven't done that, I highly recommend that. There's a lot of good ones out there. We've done both predictive index and then the DISC uh, profile, uh, both of which are great. But on either of them, I always score you know more of the visionary and, and um, you know sort of in that aspect of it. And so I tend to be the one that's kind of out in front trying to challenge and move the business forward. And, and so therefore I've tried to surround myself with, you know, a lot of the complementary styles. And I don't think that to be president and CEO, I don't think you have to be that visionary. I think that's a misconception. You know, you got to have that in, in this, you know, the, the core team, the executive team or senior leadership team. I happen to be in that style. And so I've tried to learn to embrace that and surround myself with people that are the other styles. Great. Yeah. Thank you. I know you've really focused on developing a company, and I've admired this aspect of, of Nick's companies, of having 
I would say almost an employer brand that people want to come work for Nick's. Yeah. What do you think the key aspects of that employer brand has been in building a, a culture that that people want to that are they're attracted to and then they want to stay part of? Yeah, that one's easy to answer. That's a softball. I've, I've spent a lot of time thinking about that, and and so I could really define that and dissect it. Authenticity and consistency are the two absolute key pillars to that. And so, you know, the reason why we've been able to build this brand known for people and corporate culture and so forth is be, is for those two reasons. And so I'll start with the authenticity. Early on in our growth journey, you know, we had gone from four family members to, you know, at the time, I'm going to say we were maybe like 20 folks starting to grow. Still a very small business, but, you know, significantly different type of business. And you know, you, you encounter a lot of challenges along the way. I was probably in my late 20s or uh, early 30s at the time and just started asking myself a lot of, you know, deeper questions like, why am I doing what I'm doing? We had a perfectly good family business and is this all worth it? There's a lot of challenges and headaches that come with going from a mom and pop business to where we are today. And I think so many people get to that point and a lot of times they retreat because of the challenges. And so I was asking myself, is this worth it? And why am I doing this? And so forth. And for whatever reason, it was a real blessing. I spent a lot of time really discerning and and praying about that topic. And I feel like the peace that, that I found around it was, was because of that. And I feel that it was a spiritual thing, but the, the thought or, or, or idea that came to me was it's, why are you making it so complicated? It's all about the people. I really took that and thought a lot about it and discerned and prayed on it. And, and really what I ultimately decided was to make it all worth it. The question was, is this worth it? Why are you doing what you're doing? And I thought to make it worth it, it would be about the people. When I get to the end of my career, or the end of my life, what will I be the most proud of? And it won't be the buildings that we build or the machines that we've bought or the projects we've done, even though I love all those things. I'm a tradesperson at heart. And so I love those things. The people, the, the the lives we've impacted, you know, the, the opportunities we've had to, to create a great team, that's what I would be the most proud of. And so, therefore, everything kind of spun out of that. So that's why it's authentic. And then, you know, you align your marketing and branding around the things that are authentic. And then you just bang the drum over and over and over and over again. And so, you know, we have people that ask us about, like, what we're doing on social media and with video and all that stuff. and we want to do that. And how are you doing that? And what I always tell them is like, well, we've been doing this for 10 years, you know, so you can't just catapult into that. You know, I mean, you have to just be consistent and it can be frustrating to, to get that traction. We've done a startup business recently and we're trying to replicate that. And it's really challenging. You know, you forget how, even when you have the, the playbook or the recipe and you've already done it, you forget how you just, it takes time and consistency. So I think those are the biggest aspects of it no that i think that's helpful to to really think about like it like a culture takes years to really develop and to start a new business and i think that's probably also something to kind of a related topic like one of the areas that you've you've seen growth in is through acquisition and so what what happens often is that they're probably the the part that's underestimated the most is culture yeah and like it being a cultural fit and even when often it is a cultural fit it still takes a significant amount of time and effort to pull it together until you 
feel like you're actually part of the same company. Yeah, yeah. One of the things that you you talked a little bit about, like your why, your purpose uh, around, and that being around people. One of the areas I, th- I think is kind of interesting to consider in manufacturing. Typically, you you have lower engagement rates among employees than in other industries. Yep. And one of the questions that Gallup uses to look at engagement is: Does the mission or purpose of my company seem important to me? Yeah. And so I'd be curious how you approach that with your employees, like helping them understand that what they do is important yeah, and not just, Hey, I'm making a, a part or I'm making a, yeah, some stairs or something yeah. like that. How do, how do you talk about those types of uh, areas related to purpose? Yeah. You, you just, like you said, you just talk about it, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and I mean, I think sometimes we overcomplicate these things. Like, first of all, you have to have a vision and mission or purpose that people can get behind. Mm -hmm. So our vision is a world-class team and to be recognized as a national leader in our industry. And then our mission is be big, act small. And so I think that's things that our team can get around. And then I just preach it every chance I get why this is the vision and mission. What does it mean? What does it mean to you? What does it mean internally? What does it mean externally? We talk about it constantly. Every new team member at 90 days goes through an orientation process where we do history and culture orientation. And, uh, you know, I host that along with our director of HR and I stand up there and I give that speech every time, you know, and, and so really trying to, to, uh, set the tone right out of the gate that this is, and they get a mini version of that on their first day where they get our vision, mission, values, and our HR director talks to them about that. But then in 90 days, I come in and meet with them. When we bring them in like a cohort, we run that session once a month. And so we bring them all together and do that. So it's just doing things like that. Every single time that I get up and address the entire company, I always talk about it. You know, there's not, I don't think there's ever a time that I'm not formally addressing the whole company, which I do at least quarterly, that I don't talk about it. So those are just some practical things around it, you know, and, and, and then I think the other thing that sometimes just gets overlooked is you have to have the people that, that do believe that, you know, Mm -hmm. there's in in terms of purpose, there's a great little parable that I I like to share all the time. Dick Farmer is the founder of CentOS Corporation. Uh, It was started as Acme Ragtowl, just a little bitty mom and pop business. They were washing rags in the Ohio river and he built it into a Fortune 500 company along with his team. But he, would, he told a story. He said there was a guy digging a ditch, and a, a bystander came along and said, hey, what are you doing? And he said, oh, I'm just digging this ditch for this water line. And so he went along with another guy in the ditch, and he asked him a question. He said, what are you doing? He said, oh, I'm digging a ditch for this water line for this building we're building over here. And he went to the third guy, and he said, hey, what are you doing? And he said, oh, we're digging a ditch for the water line for this cathedral they're building across the street. It's going to be the most beautiful cathedral you've ever seen. It'll be the most grand building in this entire city. And he said, which of the three guys do you want working for you? You know, And so it's obvious the third guy, but because he connected with his purpose of what he was doing. He wasn't just digging a ditch. He was helping build this cathedral. Mm-hmm. And so I tell that story a lot because it's like, you can talk about purpose and, and talk about vision and mission, but if you don't have people that are predisposed to accepting that right i tell people all the time if if you just want a paycheck and you want to punch a clock somewhere this is not the place for you Mm -hmm. you need to go somewhere else and that's fine the world needs those people too but not here Mm -hmm. 
I saw a video that you created a while back, Work That Matters. Yeah. And um, I'd be curious if you could share kind of the thought that went into that video, because I think it speaks to that idea of, you know, we're not just making metal parts, like there's really purpose involved. So would you talk a little bit about the, the idea behind that video? Yeah, so we had been using the slogan Work That Matters and social media hashtag Work That Matters for some time. And for that, precisely that reason that we just talked about, like, you know, helping people connect what they do with a, with a greater purpose. And it's not hard to connect what we do. I mean, it really is work that matters. I mean, we're keeping the power plant running. We're keeping the oil refinery running. You know, we, we're building hospitals on and on, helping farmers make food. So there's just so many things that we do that's pretty easy. A lot of what we do is safety related. So people's lives depend on the work we're doing. So it's not hard to connect it to a, a higher purpose, but but we don't just take it for granted. So we talk about it and try to connect it with purpose. So that's where work that matters came from. And then the backstory on the video is every year I try to do kind of a hype video. We're very blessed. We're partners with Casey Velker of Captivated Content. Casey used to be a part of our organization as our head of marketing, and, and he had aspirations to start his own business. So we helped him do that. You know, we have great talent, so we're able to produce these videos. But so every year we would put out like a hype video to kick off the new year to get our team excited. And this was during COVID. And we had a financially, we're having a tough time during COVID too. And then not to mention all the other ancillary things that are going on. So it just didn't feel right and feel authentic to put out a hype video. But I still wanted to put out a nice video that would really touch our team and, and inspire them. And so. I don't know. That's where the idea came from. I thought, what if we just did a video that's a lot more subdued and like really more speaks to the heart. And so that's, yeah, that's what we did there. We just kind of wove a few different storylines together of the way our work matters. It wasn't just how we serve the customers and we showcased a, a young guy walking out of the high school with his letterman jacket on and then walking into the shop floor. He was an intern for us. And you know, some other things. So yeah, it was a really cool project and definitely speaks to the culture and brand we've tried to build. Right. No, no, I enjoyed watching that video. And for our listeners, I would encourage them to check out that video. I think it's a great way of communicating purpose behind the work. Yeah. And it was just a couple minutes long too. Mm -hmm. You can say a lot in two minutes with a good video. Absolutely. Yeah. One of the aspects that's unique about your company compared to many other companies is the family business piece. And so there are probably listeners on here that are involved with family businesses. Maybe some aren't. But how has the family piece of being a business really influenced, you know, how you lead and how you operate the company? It definitely has influenced us. We, uh, I, I would say that the typical one that I think is probably not unique to us is that we're more we think longer term because we're a family business. While we're certainly very prudent and diligent about financial performance, we can make decisions longer term because we're not managing to Wall Street or, or, or investors breathing down our neck. But I think that's not unique to us. That's something unique to privately held or family businesses, particularly families. For example, we went forward with a major expansion right in the middle of COVID. And I just shared that, you know, that was a tough financial time for us. But the building we were building, to me, was a multi-generational investment. ROI on something like that doesn't even really factor into the equation. Like, we needed it. We knew we needed it. We knew we were going to build a good building that was going to last for generations. And so 
you're able to make those decisions with a lot greater sense of peace about, we didn't know it was going to last a year, two years, three years, whatever, but in the grand scheme of things, we knew we needed the building and we would be thankful that we build it. We joke a lot about, you know, talking about doing stuff and a motto I've been trying to adopt lately is when we do things, said, I don't want the kids or grandkids to ever say, why in the hell did dad cut corners on this? You know, <laughs> why did he do this? And, you know, or we talk about like, you know, what it costs to build something today and it's so expensive and the the kids or grandkids are going to be saying, can you believe it only cost a million dollars to build that? You know, right. and right now we're thinking, oh my gosh, it's a million dollars to mm. build that. So that changes the way you look at things. And then I think the other big part of it that maybe is more unique to us is that we really tried to bring that sense of family into all aspects of our business. And the first thing people think about, you know, when you say family is they start thinking is, well, it's all touchy feely and like, we're going to all love each other all the time. And that's a part of it. But there's also a part of like, Hey, these are the values and this is what we stand for as a family or as a company. And you either get, get in line with that or we're going to help you get in line with it or, or, or you can't be part of the family. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, so I think, you know, there's the other aspect of it too that helps us to be more prudent about making some decisions that need to be made and making sure that, you know, we have a high, we have a really high standards for our people, especially in the industry we're in, you know? And so it's hard to do that sometimes when you have deadlines to meet and customers are breathing down your neck. But when you're trying to maintain that, that legacy and your name's on the building, you know, it, it allows you to be a little more diligent about those decisions you have to make. Sure. What's your hope in terms of the future of the business with family? Yeah, I mean, ultimately, we would like to see it go on into the sixth generation. I mean, we we recognize that that's ultimately up to them, and they have to be passionate about it, you know, and really want to contribute. You know, it's not something that is, is first of all, it's not something that's mandated of them, and second of all, it's not going to be something that's just given to them. I mean, they're going to have to earn it and want it. And so we're planning, we're planning for that as the, 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 the hope and the first option, but we're already planning option B and option C. And we've actually listed them out. That's something we just did, did recently. And, you know, you've helped us as a family business uh, from a coach and consultant standpoint. But one thing we did was list it out right now. What is our priority of exit? You know, priority one would be the sixth gen and the next family would take it over. And then priority two and three on down the line. And so and that could evolve over time, but at least we know what the priority exit strategy looks like. And I think if we manage the business the right way, it puts ourselves in a great situation that, mm-hmm. you know, if the kids want to take it over, they're going to have a very healthy, well-organized business to take over. And if they don't, we're going to have a highly marketable company. Sure. So as, you, as you've seen tremendous growth of the company under your leadership, how has your leadership changed or have you adapted and, and adjusted like what you spend time doing now versus say 10 years ago? Yeah, well, 10 years ago, I was still involved in the projects themselves. You know, today I'm not involved in the actual, you know, projects, the, the, the product we produce or the, or the repair that we're making. I'm not involved in that. I do. I think probably the only involvement I still have is I uh, oversee large estimates that go out. I still mm-hmm. have, have some input on that, uh, which I think is appropriate. But other than that, I'm not really involved in the day-to-day operations per se. I'm not really involved in any of the hiring of, of that 
you know, production folks uh, or, you know, or their day-to-day direction. But we've developed touch points and check sheets that really allow me and the other members of the executive team to stay very in tune with day-to-day operations. I have a dashboard I can look at daily, weekly to get a really good snapshot of what's going on across the company. You know, we're not that big of a company, uh, 150 folks, you know, relatively speaking, it's pretty small, but we're spread out across seven or eight, eight locations now. So two of the eight are in Poseyville, but they're separate. So, you know, when you're, when you're decentralized, it can be harder to kind of, you know, keep your thumb on it, so to speak. So we've put good systems and processes to allow us to keep our thumb on it and know if I do need to get involved, where do I need to get involved? Instead of like, you know, kind of hard to manage by walking around when you're spread out, sure. you know, across states and, and different locations. So, so there's that. And then I try to, uh, you know, really the, you know, the, the common phrase about working in the business or on the business. Uh, something I started doing recently was hold myself accountable. I have a goal to spend 12 hours a week working on the business. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then one of uh, my team members on our executive team asked me to define what it meant to work on the business, which I think was fantastic, you know. So I actually put that on paper and said, here's, because that can mean something different to anybody. Sure. Uh, for example, riding along with a sales rep, is that working on the business or in the business? To me, that was in the business. That was something I felt like I should do regularly. That wasn't me helping move us forward. That was just me being a, a good manager and leader, making sure I'm checking in. Uh, that's just one example. So I defined what working on the business meant. And then and I tracked that weekly and had a goal to spend 12 hours a week uh, doing that. Uh, we're here recording today in my home office. I try to spend one day a week here. It doesn't always happen, but uh, you know that gives me a day of focus. I think it's still very important to be present and be with your people. I don't think the president and CEO should work from home. Uh, most of the time but for me one day a week is very manageable and, and my team's very respectful of that and i think frankly i think that they were glad that i do that so that i can get away and think try to think about the business and you know moving us forward whether that's working on acquisitions or the next next big expansion or i'm working on a culture playbook right now i'm trying to take everything we've developed and put it all in writing and a playbook that we can hand to new team members uh, or potential acquisitions. So it's things like that that I'm working, trying to work more on. How, how difficult was that? Because I, I think a lot of leaders struggle with pulling themselves out of daily work that they have done in the past. Yeah. There's probably some of it could be explained by ego or trust issues or questioning whether yeah. you've developed a team. How have you done that? Because I think this is something that a lot of leaders really struggle with, and, and some never get past it. Yeah, I struggled with it too, and still do sometimes. But, you know, if you think about most business owners are working 50, 60 hours a week, and I'm talking about 12 hours, mm-hmm. you know, spent averaging 12 hours. I mean, it's 20% of the time. If you can't spend 20% of your time moving the business forward, I mean, you got to really, <laughs> you got to assess the situation and go, it's sort of like, you got a ship that's plowing through the ocean and everybody's down below working on the engines or pouring the fuel in the thing. And who the hell's up at the helm driving? You know, right. I mean, if, if you're head down putting out estimates or project managing or out on the shop floor every day, putting out fires, like there's literally nobody at the helm driving the ship. Mm-hmm. So for me, I guess the 12 hours a week that I try to do that, that's kind of me going, going up to the, 
to the pilot house and making sure we're driving the damn thing in the right direction. And, and then, but you still got to go da- back down below and do all the other stuff too. Right. It's it's that transition that is really critical as you grow as as a company to relieve yourself of doing the work and doing more of the work through others. Yeah. And and I think that's that's something you've been intentional about in terms of developing a you know a solid executive team and yeah it starts with having a really great team mm-hmm. you know dave ramsey always says you're not going to win the kentucky derby with a bunch of donkeys <laughs> so <laughs> you got to have the right team that's capable and then have ways to check in make sure that what's supposed to be happening is happening i mean you, you can go too far the other direction too where you know mm-hmm. it's like you know you just delegate everything and then don't ever check in and make sure it's done right. right. And and believe me, I still screw up all the time. (laughs) (laughs) You know, you move through different phases of that, you know, of that journey. And and I'm trying, what I'm struggling with now is even the projects that move the business forward. I can't be involved in all those. So the day-to-day aspects of the business we're pretty good on, but like we want to, an example is we're wanting to, to launch a new product line and, you know, I can't be the one that drives that anymore because we have three or four different high priority things going on. Mm-hmm. And so I need to learn how to get the right group of people together, explain to them the goal and the mission, and then let them mm-hmm. figure out how to get it done. You know, right. I, I'm not doing a good job of that right now because I kind of turned over the day-to-day operation stuff, but all those projects, I wanted to micromanage everything in those projects. And so there's phases you move through mm-hmm. in the journey for sure. Sure. And for me, looking at creating that follow-up system is is a you know an integral part of it. Giving somebody a charge or a goal, giving them some autonomy, then to complete the to work towards that goal, and then having like those regular checkpoints. Yep. To provide feedback in terms of the progress that's going on, to talk through roadblocks that are being met, and support. And and make sure there's accountability and follow through. I think that's that's really a critical piece as you get bigger. Yeah. What have you done like to intentionally develop leaders? So you you mentioned like you know an executive team. You also have probably a, a level of middle managers, frontline managers. Yep. But what are the things you've done as a company to develop those people? Yeah, and you pretty accurately described the org chart, executive team, management team. Those are the folks that are running departments or business units, if you will. They have P&L and HR responsibility. And then frontline leaders, you know, shop floor leadership. So we've been very intentional about that. I'm, I'm a big advocate of lifelong learning, so I'm always reading a lot of books and pushing books onto people. And some of them embrace it and some of them get tired of it. But uh, So it started with that, and then it's evolved into now we actually have an in-house leadership program. The acronym is LEAD, stands for Leadership Ex- Exploration and Development. And we have levels one, two, and three of that. And a- actually, our management team and executive team just went through our first LEAD 3 program together as a cohort. Actually, last Friday, we just did our capstone event at New Harmony. Uh, so that was really cool. I think I saw something on social media about a golf cart scavenger hunt or something. Yeah, that was that was pretty fun. Yeah, that was that was a fun way to finish up our event. There was no prize other than bragging rights, but it was pretty competitive. I bet. So if anybody in listening that was in New Harmony on Friday, we apologize. <laughs> but no, so we do a level 1 program which is for 
for aspiring or current frontline leaders. It's a 16 week course, and uh, we developed that internally based on you know books that are important to us and different programs we've been together, and I'll just try to give them a high level introduction to you know the way we do things, why we do them, the way we do them. You know, basic communication skills, leadership skills, problem solving skills, etc. And uh, we take turns teaching different segments of that. So the executive team, some of the senior leadership team will teach that. And then uh, we have our frontline leaders. We meet quarterly with them. And then the program we just did, which we hope to continue to roll out to other team members as we grow, is the LEAD 3 program. So that was a year-long program we did. We actually brought in an outside facilitator to lead that. And delegation was one of the big topics we covered, which we kind of just hit on here. And so it's been important. I mean, if we're going to continue to grow and uh, I saw a quote the other day that said, you don't grow businesses, you grow people and they grow businesses. And, you know, I think that's a really good slogan for the program we're doing. I mean, we really have to think about it in that context. Right. And that's a, that's something we need to consider because often we want to hire people and we say, Hey, this is a leader. We want to hire this person. But in reality, most of the time, the people we're going to hire are, we need to develop into leaders rather than find somebody who's already there. Yeah. Or at a minimum, develop in the way that we do things because, Mm -hmm. you know, it's different everywhere. Sure. Yeah. No, that's a, that's a good distinction. As you have grown, what's been your approach to growth? Is it has it been more organic growth of, you know, your core business? Has it been more acquisition-based? Will you talk a little bit about that? Yep. Most people break growth into organic or acquisition. We break it into three buckets. So we have acquisition is what it is, pretty straightforward. And then organic, we have what we call incremental and innovative. So we try to be balanced a third in each of those buckets. That's always part of our strategic plan. So incremental is the the practical stuff, like we got to make sure we're adding to our sales team every year or adding to the sales and marketing budget. You know, if you want to grow, you have to add to that budget. We got to make sure we're reinvesting in capital equipment. And, you know, it's it's the blocking and tackling stuff. But you have to be very intentional about that. And, and we try to measure what... What are we investing into that bucket and what kind of growth return are we getting on that? Mm-hmm. You know, so we can, one, make sure that we're not neglecting it. But two, we want to measure the ROI on that bucket. The second one is we actually call them pillars, the three pillars of growth, uh, incremental, innovative, and acquisition. So innovative are bigger things. Um, so it can be launching a new product line. It can be, you know, a really large scale technology implementation that might span across more than a year, a big new piece of equipment, bigger things that are still organic, but would, you know, really span, probably span across more than a year that would move us forward. And then the third bucket acquisition, which is obvious, you know, acquiring other complementary businesses. So yeah, an acquisition, a lot of people think that that's been the big part of our growth, but it's actually been right at one third of our growth. Now, where we've been able to to realize a lot of growth is taking a business that we've already acquired and then growing growing after the acquisition, you know, mm-hmm. which all gets credited to the organic side, but you know, that's what you look for in a great acquisition is a business that's coming along pretty solidly, but really you just need to add some fuel to the fire and you can take it to the next level and so mm-hmm. uh, we've had a couple of those that we've been able to really really realize some growth. What do you look for when you when you acquire a business? 
Yeah, it, it's a, there's six different things we look at, actually, and, and we have a matrix that we measure those on. But in that, the area that's being emphasized can change from time to time based on, you know, the needs of the business. Like, for example, right now, we have elevated geography. That's one of the six things we look at. So geography has been elevated on that priority list because we really, we have a Cincinnati location and we really want to build more critical mass in that region. And so that's not the only thing we're looking for, but because we'll have product service offerings, another one of the six. So we're always looking at what product service offering is very complimentary or is missing in our portfolio or that we want to gain more critical mass in. So we're still paying attention to those other things, but right now we've really elevated geography. The size of the organization, of course, is very important. It can't be too big, can't be too small. The people that they have in place, Mm -hmm. the geography I mentioned, customer-based industry they serve is another one we pay attention to. Mm -hmm. Is there a certain industry segment we're not in that we want to be in? Mm -hmm. So those are just some of the things we take into consideration. Yeah. How do you think about then like cultural fit as you approach an acquisition? It's important, but it's really hard to measure, and it's it's a little bit of like kind of the the black box. You don't know what's in there, and, and so most of the time, we're not able to meet any of the the team before the acquisition. You know, most of the time, these are small privately held businesses, so mm-hmm. they're kept kept very quiet. So you don't have the luxury of getting to know anybody. So you just you're really trying to do it on you know, listening to cues and things that you hear and paying attention to to certain tangible things that there's very tangible cultural things like overtime. We work a lot of overtime. If if we're buying a business that works almost no overtime, you're probably going to have a cultural challenge, you know, integrating mm-hmm. those. So safety is another one. You know, what's their dress code? What's their safety policy? There's a lot of basic tangible things that can give you red flags, you mm-hmm. know, and then there's some of the other ones, the intangibles that are really hard to to know. And I guess if there's anything that we've learned is we just plan that even when we think it's the best cultural alignment, there's going to be challenges. There's going to be turnover. Just plan for that. Be ready to tackle it, really. Are there any times you look back on your leadership career, like maybe mistakes you've made or lessons that you've learned that stick out to you? Yeah. I mean, early on, command and control leadership, which is probably not terribly uncommon with new leaders given orders usually doesn't work out as well one thing i learned along the way was that people really need to know the why of course there's a famous book start with why but you know even before i even knew of that book an example would be i'd go out on the shop floor and change priorities and i would wonder why this guy on the floor was so irritated that we changed priorities like he's getting paid by the hour what does he care Mm-hmm. And then later I realized it was good that he cared. Those were the kinds of people I wanted. And if I would just explain to him why we had to change their priorities, he would be a lot more accepting about it and, and get behind it, you know. And so just learning early on that people need to know the why. And I think that is so often. I'm preaching that with our team constantly. Like, we've got to tell people why we're doing this. And it's so important. It can't be overstated. So I made those mistakes a lot yeah, early I- on. I've led some workshops on providing feedback to people, and one of the areas, even the research suggests that the area we neglect the most is like the impact. And so if you think about like, if you're trying to give somebody feedback, hey, we need to change this behavior, we need to do this differently. As a leader, we often assume that the other person understands 
the impact and why we're doing that. And the research suggests that like that is the area that most leaders neglect. They might point out the behavior that they want more or less of, but they don't talk about the impact. And so I think that's a good good thing for all of us to think about. And I even consider that like when I give feedback to my kids, not just as as a leader, but like to to provide that to kids. And I think that that type of thing can really help build strong relationships internally, like in a work environment, but also at home. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. What would you say you're excited about right now or in the future? We have the best team we've ever had. We have the best asset base we've ever had. There's a lot of good trends in our industry with the nearshoring and reshoring and manufacturing that I'm very excited about, which I think is a great thing for our country. I mean, if we learned anything in COVID, it was that we need to make stuff here in the United States. And not only for just logistical supply chain disruptions, but for security reasons, it's, it's really scary when you think about the, the critical things of anything from medicine to critical infrastructure that we were relying on others to that we don't have the best relationship with. So I'm excited about the, the trend of you know, domestic manufacturing coming back. Obviously, I'm excited about it because we're in that industry, but also I think it's good for our country. Infrastructure spending that, that, that needs to happen. I mean, our roads and bridges and airports and things that were all built 50 to 75 years ago that, you know, need a lot of work. That's a good trend for us. So yeah, we just, we have, we've got, like I said, got the best team, best asset base we've ever had. And and I think we have a lot of opportunity to, to go to the next level. So I'm more excited now than I've ever been. You know, as a country, we pushed like a, a college education for for a lot of years. I know growing up, I don't think I ever considered anything other than that. Most of your employees probably did not attend a four-year college. How do you how do you talk to young people about just the opportunity that's available in in the manufacturing industry or or like like with Nick's companies? Yeah, we talk to them and show them constantly using social media but also the old school methods. I mean, we've got a team of people that are in Evansville today at the Job Spark where we've got a booth set up. Kids are coming through, learning. They're doing a little project. They're building something out of popsicle sticks with a blueprint. And my wife's part of that team. You know, she's always working on trying to build the talent pipeline uh, along with with our head of HR and some other folks. And we're just working on it constantly. And it's actually a KPI we track. We track how many recruiting events or touch points did we have this week we have last week we had gibson southern high school came and did a, a field trip at our shop and we have north posey there the other locations we have we're bringing kids from from those locations so just showing them i think that's been really important is to show them to let them really see what what modern manufacturing looks like and how it can be really exciting and, and really cool and so yeah i've just got to talk about it and show them and then the last thing i'll say about that is there's a good trend right now of the pendulum swinging back the other way. And so there is optimism and hope. We are, it's going to get worse before it gets better. I mean, I think it's pretty simple math suggests that when you look at the the blue collar folks that are going to exit the workforce in the next 10 years, as opposed to what's coming in, it's going to get worse. But the trend is moving back the right way. I mean, more and more parents, especially in my generation, and as we move along here, are are more open to their kids moving into the trades. And I think that's 
that's the biggest element of it. That, that mm-hmm. it's the parents that influence it the most. And you, know, you think about there was an old saying people said, "Well, the, the trades is good, but just not for my kid." Right? Everybody want everybody sees the value in trades, but they just think, "Well, my kid's too good for that." But that whole perception's changing a lot. People, there's there's doctors out there telling their kids like, "Go be a plumber." I mean, you can make an unbelievable amount of money doing that. So it, it's really changing. It's just going to take time. Right. No, I, I agree. And I think it's it's looking at what work do I want to do with my life? What what am I passionate about? What do I enjoy doing? What kind of education do I really, you know, am I interested in? And also to factor in like what what are my earning expectations? Like what kind of lifestyle do I want? Yeah. And and there are some incredible opportunities, I think, you know, through a company like like Nick's or or other manufacturing companies that, you know, I don't know if anybody ever talked to me about those types of possibilities. Yeah. And, and I think that moving forward, you know, having those conversations and really for you working on working as a to develop a really strong employer brand and building a, a great company that people want to work for. Ultimately, that's like the competitive advantage. Absolutely. When you consider the labor shortage. Yep. That's what I always say. If we can be the best at the hardest thing, we separate ourselves the most from mm-hmm. the competition. So yeah. that's absolutely the biggest strategy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Well, thank you very much for uh, for talking today. How can people find more about you and Nick's companies? Yeah, nickscompanies.com, plural I-E-S, and then Matthew Nick's on LinkedIn. We just, to to tease a, a video series we have coming out that's on the topic that you just mentioned, we've got a project that we're going to be doing in conjunction with Captivated Content called The Life of a Craftsman. We're doing a four-part video, short video series, really highlighting the lifestyle and the, the, the fulfillment that one can gain from being a tradesperson or a craftsman. And I've never been more excited about a artistic project that we're working on that really shines a light on what we're doing and the, basically what we talked about here on the podcast today. So I look, hope people will check that out when it comes out. It's called A Life of a Craftsman. That'll be on our YouTube channel. And Nick's Companies has a YouTube channel and captivated content as well. So, uh, yeah, I think those are the best ways. All right. I look forward to seeing that. And thanks again for joining us today. Yeah. Thanks, Tad. To learn more about Dr. Tad Dickel and the T.A. Dickel Group, please visit tadickle.com. Thank you for joining us. Yeah.